Welcome to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I am Clint Adams, Legal Director of Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, we will be discussing financial exploitation with James Lindsay. As we start every program, we want to remind you it's very important that you know Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm providing legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys are licensed to practice law only in the state of West Virginia, and this information relates only to the law in the state of West Virginia, provided for informational purposes only. While our host and guests are attorneys and non-attorney advocates, the information is legal information. This does not take the place of the attorney-client privilege or the attorney-client relationship, so please do not yell any confidential information into the radio as you're driving down the road, particularly if someone else is present because you may find yourself in a bad situation. If you have a specific situation, you should speak directly with an attorney about that situation. Again, I'm Clint Adams, legal director and the host of What's the Law Say? It's a pleasure to be here today, and today I'm joined by James Lindsay. We're going to talk about financial exploitation. James is the chair of Legal Aid of West Virginia's Financial Exploitation Task Force and a staff attorney in our Morgantown office. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how long you've been practicing law. Well, uh, I practiced uh, first in Buchanan. I graduated law school 2015 or so. Um, I did private practice in Buchanan for about five years, handled family law, red car, blue car, car accidents. Um, we did a lot of uh, employment work there. Um, moved back to Morgantown with my uh, my wife and daughter. Um, and I'm, I'm from Morgantown, so we wanted, decided to come back home, and uh, I got lucky and got a, a great position here at Legal Aid, and that's what I've been doing since then. So if you drove a white car, you couldn't represent people in a white car versus yellow car <laughs> car accidents? I, we had, we've had all colors. <laughs> what do you mean? Uh, I mean, that's kind of a, a thing that you and I would say, and, and we would know what we mean. But if you're not an attorney, what do you mean when you're talking about like red car, blue car, car accidents? Just, uh, j just car accident cases, um, the negligent suits, um, suing on car accidents. So mostly just civil litigation. Those are the yes. kind of cases that are happening in circuit court in West Virginia. Yes. Um, go ahead. Yes, I've done civil um, litigation my entire career. Um, when I was young, I, I started working for uh, an insurance defense firm. I worked there for a long time. Now you mentioned you're practicing in the Morgantown office. What's fun to do around the Morgantown community? Oh, Morgantown is the home of the, the Mountaineers. So we we love uh, going to football games and basketball games, and my my wife and daughter and I enjoy uh, the shops and uh, new things that have gone up around town. It's uh, it's grown up quite a bit since I was a kid. It is a growing community. Every time I go up there, it seems like they've put a new apartment complex on the top of some hill someplace. Yeah, absolutely. We've got a it's a, it's a it seems to be a battle between shopping complexes and apartment buildings. 
And you say to yourself, where are they getting all the money to do that kind of stuff? So while we're talking about money, let's talk about people who um, are sucking money and stealing money from others in the field of financial exploitation, which is the area of law that you spend a lot of your time in. Big fancy word we use because we're lawyers, right? Some people would just call it stealing money, but we call it financial exploitation. What does that mean and what's the difference? Financial exploitation is a a provision of the law that is designed to specifically protect um, those who are elderly uh, or disabled or incapacitated. Um, In West Virginia, you are elderly if you are 65 or older. you know, we'll hold our objections to that. But it gets, the, it's younger every the, day. I'll just say the, that. <laughs> the, legally in West Virginia, you are elderly if you are 65 or older. Um, and if you meet statutory definitions of being um, incapacitated, um, that usually means you've been subject of a guardianship or conservatorship uh, in West Virginia, meaning you have essentially... A a judge has looked at your case and determined that you are not capable of making your own uh, life decisions. Um, And then if you are a disabled person, which is a general kind of catch all definition that you may not have been subject of a guardianship or conservatorship, um, but you are still you still had trouble with the everyday functions of life, feeding yourself, caring for yourself, doing your banking, um, and maybe you've had someone else helping you. So those are the generally the three categories of people that financial exploitation is specifically tailored to uh, protect. Now, that disabled definition, does that include, like, I don't know, maybe you had to have a leg amputated or something like that, and that's that's given you a certain disability that's that's more physical, um, but doesn't really affect your ability to make mental decisions. Would that include someone that falls into that category under the under the law definition? It could um, if you it depends on your level of functioning, If if you are able to get out, you're able to drive, you're able to get to the bank, um, you're able to do all the things that we generally do for ourselves. Um, Likely, you may, you likely won't fit that definition of being disabled. So where we're talking about this specific area of the law with financial exploitation, if you're 35 and healthy, you're not going to be the victim of financial exploitation. Is that what you're saying? Generally not. You you may be the victim of a scam, um, but that likely won't meet this particular special definition. Now, you would still be the victim of a larceny or a theft or a fraud. Um, Those are still provisions in the law that protect everyone. Um, But this provision of the law is specifically designed for um, the elderly and disabled, people who are vulnerable and generally rely on others for help. So this section is carved out specifically because you're more vulnerable. That doesn't in any way keep those other claims as it relates to fraud, cons, scams, things of that nature are still there in addition to this then. Do I understand that correctly? Yes. Yes. Um, Okay. And. Um, I have used those um, those other causes of action when when necessary um, in sometimes in, in place of or along with uh, financial exploitation. So we talked about who's eligible then for financial exploitation, someone who's been de- deemed legally incapacitated at some point, elderly people, people who are disabled. Now, what does it take now on top of that? What actions are they looking at to make a financial exploitation? We use 
big fancy jargon in our uh, law practice. Um, the financial exploitation is the intentional misappropriation of finances or uh, wealth. So we can break that down into, you know, the the bad actors' actions must be intentional. It, they they have taken money out of the account, put it in their own, uh, or or used it some other way, or maybe they're just holding it. Um, I always say, you know, if if you take someone's money and stash it under your own bed, um, that's still a misappropriation. You are keeping someone else from using it. Um, sometimes you'll have a, a power of attorney or someone acting in some fiduciary nature, um, and we'll explain that a little bit more. But you may make an investment, say you make an investment for your grandma. For an example, you were an, a crypto buyer and you, you know, convinced you, you convinced your grandma to buy some crypto, um, but you also bought some crypto and then it, it ends up not working out. Generally, something like that is not going to be intentional. Um, you, if you're trusted to handle someone's investments, we expect that they may go south. But if you're intentionally using money for your own benefit or essentially keeping it from the use of the victim, that's where we have a, a problem. So kind of um, along the same lines where we talked about earlier, uh, someone could con a 35-year-old. Any of us could be victims of cons absolutely. or scams or frauds. That could happen, right? We could hire a roofing contractor that takes our money and never shows up. That could happen to absolutely. any of us. If that if that happens to it and you hired a roofer for grandma's roof and that roofer never showed up, but you didn't convince the roofer to do that and the roofer scammed everybody, then you're not going to be guilty of financial exploitation because someone else's bad acts and you were acting in good faith trying to spend their money to fix grandma's roof, right? Correct. Correct. Okay. Um, it, you know, in that scenario, if, if you convince grandma to give you the money to fix the roof <laughs> and, you know, you, you run away with grandma's money as grandson, um, that's where we have an exploitation. Okay. Now, what are uh, we talk about those factors? Are there are there other things that they're looking for when there's these accusations of financial exploitation? Is there some kind of a relationship between the victim and the, perp uh, the I'm going to use another big word, right? Perpetrator, the person who's doing the bad things. Is there some kind of a relationship there? Yes, we're generally looking um, the the statute uses, I believe the exact language is persons of trust and confidence. I guess we can explain what a fiduciary relationship means. A fiduciary relationship, again, we've we've got our five dollar lawyer words. Um, it just means a legal relationship that implies greater duties. Someone who is the administrator of an estate after someone's death is a fiduciary. That means they, owe a duty to the other person that's greater than the duty they owe to themselves. We're generally, we're looking for that type of relationship, um, but the statute does not use that language. It is persons of trust and confidence. Um, so many, there are so many instances of this where, you know, someone's granddaughter or daughter or son or grandson um, will convince them to hand over money or real property um, 
but there's no power of attorney there's no documents there's no it's all it's all he said she said word of mouth but this person is their son or this person is their grandson which bestows duties of itself um and it gives you an influence over someone that the law um expects but if you exert that influence in a and in, in a negative way um then we're we're going to hold you accountable for that now does this have to be someone you're blood related to could it be a neighbor a, a boyfriend an ex-boyfriend no. uh, someone it, it, it like could that? be anyone um you you would just have to establish that that person was in a position of trust and confidence. You trusted them, you had confidence in them to do this for you, um, and they didn't. So that position of trust and confidence, does that automatically form the fiduciary relationship, or do you have to be a conservator or a guardian, or just being someone's neighbor give you a fiduciary relationship? No, um, not in West Virginia. the the case law that I've studied on this is pretty um, it it points to the the need for some outlined contractual relationship to form a fiduciary duty um, because the fiduciary duty is so great. But let's say you have a loved one and you're like suddenly they've gotten ridiculously close to this third party that's come into their life and and or even you let's say you're the neighbor right and you keep noticing someone's coming over there and stuff keeps leaving every time someone leaves something valuable heads mm-hmm. out the door with them um so you feel like someone's being taken advantage of what are some of the indicators as you're looking as a third party looking in um that you would be looking for that might be red flags generally people have patterns to their behaviors if you start to see things that are abnormal um socially and financially the the examples i use are you you've bowled you've been on the bowling league with with bob for 20 years he always shows up on wednesday he always buys the first round of beers um and now here in the last few months you know bob's been missing um he's been missing wednesdays he doesn't he's not showing up regularly anymore uh when he shows up he doesn't buy the round of beers he says he's he's struggling maybe he's he used to be a a dapper dan he he used to dress well he used to take care of himself and now he's just fallen off um those are things that you would notice that are abnormal about bob now you know what if bob starts bringing his his nephew or or niece um to to the bowling um and and they don't like bob to talk to you alone um he or or bob starts mentioning you know i've i've moved this nephew in and he's just he said he would help me pay some bills he said he would do this and that but he's not i've ended up having to you know or, or i'm having things missing chaperoning is also a big one you see someone interject themselves in your friends lives the way they haven't been before you start to see some negative effects from that um those are generally what um what we would look for so let's say you see this maybe it's your parent and your brother's the one that's taking advantage i mean i, I know i know you've seen some of that kind of work right where you have siblings or you have others uh, that are looking in and saying man my niece is really taking advantage of my mom um, but mom but my mom and i don't always get along real well a lot of times you'll see that or or yeah. that's the favored son and and it's going to be hard to talk mom out of that 
maybe mom's given power of attorney or the other person has guardianship or conservatorship over over the the victim what steps can you take then as a third party who doesn't have that legal relationship um i i always err on the side of if you see something say something um this is one of the least reported crimes and torts uh, in the country. If there's no guardianship or conservatorship, someone's just done a power of attorney, um, they still have their right to choose and decide and, uh, of, you know, what happens with their money. Um, I always tell people, you know, if, if grandma wants to go to Hawaii and marry a massage therapist, she can do it. (laughs) As long as she's, you know, of her right mind to do that, she's perfectly allowed to. So, I would try to call and get a hold of mom, see what's going on with this. If she wants to raise a complaint, if she has had any instances or if if she has noticed, you know, her her money being spent. If mom says no, um, you know, generally I would not take any action. Um, If there are special circumstances, um, you know, maybe maybe mom is disabled or has maybe mom's had a stroke um, but no one's filed a guardianship or anything like that yet in special circumstances i may advise the the other sibling if if you think your parent is not capable of making these decisions you can file for the guardianship and i will direct them that way one thing i think people should know is that if you do you know if Grandma wants to give away a bunch of stuff. There are potentially tax uh, implications as it relates to that. Mm-hmm. So if she's going to give away a fifty thousand dollar Porsche. That may be yeah. a problem, and you would want to. You would. Grandma would want to talk with an attorney to make sure, sure that she doesn't run afoul of any kind of gift taxes or anything like that. Sure. Um, because even though that may seem, you know, an extreme gift. As you noted, at the end of the day, so long as you have capacity and it's your money that you've earned throughout your life, you can spend it in ways that you want to. Um, right. And nobody's prohibiting that from happening through these laws. But what we don't want to right. do is have others coming in, swooping in and taking advantage of all the hard earned money that someone's made through their life and, right. and burning through their life savings in 10 minutes. Yes, we are now, all absolutely free to make a bad decision. Um, we just try to tailor. I've made a lot of them, James. I don't know about you, sir, but I have made many of them. I exercise my freedom, sir. Um, one one of my favorite stories is the, the, the story of a kid who's uh, visiting with his granddad and he says, granddad, how do you always know how to make the right decisions? And he says, well, son, it comes from experience. And he says, but how do I get experience? He says, you make the wrong decisions. Yes, <laughs> I think that's, that's how anybody who way. has any experience has gotten there. They've made a series of wrong decisions. Yes. So the, One of the, the bottom line is we're all free to make our make a wrong decision. Um, we just have these laws in place to make sure that we are the ones making the wrong decision. Now, you talked earlier about a both a crime and a tort as it relates to financial exploitation. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. What is a tort? There are two different statutes in financial exploitation in West Virginia. We have a tort statute, which is the civil statute, saying if you have been taken advantage of, you can sue. You have a cause of action to sue that person. Uh, We also have a criminal statute. So it is against the law in West Virginia to exploit um, the elderly, disabled, or incapacitated. Um, And there are criminal penalties that come with that. 
So as you mentioned, then are, are there two different standards? In other words, could you be eligible to sue someone for financial exploitation that maybe they didn't commit a crime? Or is it absolutely you have to have a crime, you have to have a conviction before you can bring a civil suit? Um, no, they are they are um, separate. Um, they are separate burdens of proof. Um, it's not uncommon that um, you know there, there may be a case that a prosecuting attorney may feel like there's not enough evidence to prosecute as you as as we know the 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 standard to put someone in jail is beyond a reasonable doubt um the standard to award someone money in a civil action uh, is preponderance of the evidence so those are two different standards one of the things that that I think people from my generation would relate to was O.J. Simpson's trial that consumed the world for a while, right? And, yes. and despite the fact that he wasn't convicted beyond a reasonable doubt, even after a jury trial, um, there was a civil suit and substantial damages were awarded. Would it be the same thing then in financial exploitation? You might not be convicted of a crime, but you could still uh, suffer damages in a civil suit? Yes, yes, very possible. Are there other civil remedies that are available besides just suing someone? Yes, um, you can um, go to the magistrate court and um, you can file a petition for a protective order. Um, it's that works um, exactly the same way as uh, or domestic violence statutes. You can go to magistrate court, um, take out the petition, plead your case. Um, Say that sometimes the bad actor still has access to your bank accounts. You know, the, you've given a power of attorney. Um, you may not have time to revoke it. Um, you know, if if you revoke it, you know, you've got to give it to the power of attorney um, and to your bank and any other banks. Um, so if where you think there's a risk that someone may, you know, run around with that power of attorney, opening up credit cards to you know, taking loans, those kind of things, um, you can have a judicial order um, that bars that person from from taking any action. Um, you can have the order bar them from contact um, and taking any financial action whatsoever. So who can file one of these financial exploitation protection orders? Does it have to be the victim or can it be a third party that suspects the financial exploitation? It can be a third party. Um, our, the statute is written specifically to permit third parties to file um, because the, the, these statutes are to protect the most vulnerable. And they take into account that sometimes the most vulnerable can't make it to the courthouse and swear out a petition. Um, now, um, the, the lawyer brain in me wants to I will caveat that it, it would become much more difficult, say, if you didn't have a willing victim. You certainly could file it. It may get more difficult if if grandma doesn't is not on your side. Um, she's going to go into court and say she's not being victimized. So if I think an elderly person like my grandpa, for example, let's say I think he's the victim of financial exploitation. I think my uh, I think his son is taking advantage of him. Maybe it's a stepson or whatever. And I truck down to the magistrate court. I fill out the financial exploitation protection order. I give that to the magistrate. What happens then? Um, the magistrate would have a hearing. Um, it's uh, a quick hearing. Uh, you can uh, have that hearing without the defendant present. Um, if you meet your burden, which is to show financial exploitation has occurred and likely will occur in the future, 
the magistrate can put in an order right then, that very second, that bars the bad actor from touching your bank accounts, from having contact with you, um, a, a, a number of different things. If that order is granted, the court will serve the order on the defendant. Then when the defendant is served, um, that will be we a big fancy term. We bind it over essentially to circuit court. That's when the defendant has a chance to defend themselves and say, I did not do this. Um, you know, we must afford that to to everyone. Everyone has the opportunity to defend themselves. So then the final hearing would be in circuit court in front of the circuit judge. Um, if the circuit judge believes all of your accusations, they believe financial exploitation occurred, they believe it will occur in the future, they can enter a permanent protective order, um, barring this person from, again, having contact with you, uh, whether at your home, workplace, senior citizen's home, wherever it is. The court can order property back. The court can order commissioners to redo deeds. Um, the court can um, also order um, multiplications of damages. So if uh, in any case of financial exploitation, um, the court can double the damages. If it's a, and here's where the confidence and trust language comes in. It's very important here. If it's a person of trust and confidence who has done this, the court can triple the damages. From what I heard from you, it's better if grandpa is going to be there, right? If I think grandpa's being exploited, the first step is going to be to have a conversation with grandpa and go, hey, how come, how come Joe keeps taking all the money? He's been driving around a Porsche and it looks like you're eating, you know, corn tonight for dinner. Um, Absolutely. You know, grandpa, you know, this isn't right. We should we should go down. We should seek some protection. Go down to the magistrate. We file a financial protection order with Grandpa. Grandpa says, you know, Joe's been stealing all my money. No offense to people named Joe. I just picked that name at random, right? <laughs> um, so just so we're clear. So then they have a hearing in the circuit court. Circuit court goes, Joe, why are you stealing all of his money? Pay him back three times what you've been stealing him because you was his power of attorney and you're not his power of attorney anymore. Is that is that the end of it then, or is there still a lawsuit, or does that financial protection order does that remedy take care of everything? If all the damages have been gathered, um, and the, that is a judicial order remedying damages, um, I would say that that would be the end of it. Now, if you you know if you get that protective order, you know that 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 spent money was what was on the face of the bank account and. You know, there are you you find some other transactions that are within the statute of limitations. I think you would have a better a better chance at litigating those. So, James, the the, the biggest uh, remedy from the um, financial exploitation protection order is that it kind of mm -hmm. stops the bleeding. Is that right? Absolutely. That's what it does. Yes. It, it keeps um, that person who's been stealing money from being able to continue to steal money. Right. Yes. Now, yes. now, if if there's a lawsuit that follows over damages, that lawsuit, let the lawsuits. How long does a typical civil lawsuit take? Um, depending on the size, two two to three days is is a general. Um, You're talking about the trial lasting two to three trial. days, not not the hearing's going to be held in two to three. Oh days. no no no! How long from the time <laughs> you file it till you reach a final hearing? What's oh, the span okay. there? Um, in the protective order context, it's uh, the, the circuit court has to set a hearing in 20 days. Um, that's after service on the defendant, 
that order that should be set for 20 days. Now, I believe that can be waived. The the protective order track is is much faster. It is a stop the bleeding track. However, it does have all of the tools in it that any other financial exploitation civil action would have. It's just a time. Now, if I just go down to the circuit court and take out a complaint that's not a protective order, that's not, um, you know, that's going to be a full litigation that may take a year, it may take two. So when you're dealing with these situations, we talk about we're dealing with the elderly, we're dealing with disabled, we're dealing with people that have substantial, oftentimes health issues, right? They're mm-hmm. sometimes they're near the end of life as this is discovered. What happens if the if the victim of financial exploitation dies before you have your final trial? You would reach out to the person's estate. Um, generally, the loved ones of that person would open an estate. I believe the the estate kind of steps into the shoes um, of the the victim. James, what happens when there's been an exploitation and all that money's been spent? There aren't many lifelines in that scenario. Um, In in that case, um, I've had cases that this has happened. Um, I've pursued I generally pursue some type of wage garnishment um, against the the perpetrator. It's it's like cleaning up after a tornado. I mean, there's only certain stuff you can do, and if there's no money, that's those are the those are the bad cases. James, one of the things that I've heard about in these kinds of cases is, well, I put all the I put all grandma's money in my name so that she would then be eligible for some form of public benefits, whether it be Medicaid, whether it be nursing home care, anything like that. First of all, let me start with, is it, can you do that? Can you just put someone's money in someone else's name so that, so that they can be eligible for public benefits? Um, generally not. Um, you know, I, now I would speak to, um, generally for those type of questions, um, there are a ton of attorneys around that are very good at financial planning. Um, they're very good at planning those things ahead of time. So we talk about gift taxes and things like that. I think the moral of the story is that if you've got more than 10 or $20,000 in your nest egg, it's probably worth it to talk to an attorney and consult about how you can make sure that you keep yourself eligible and do it the right way. Is it, would that be uh, advice you would give as well? Absolutely. Um, so there, there are some things you can do um, to preserve someone's benefits in that case. Well, James, I appreciate you taking the time to talk about this important topic. Yes, sir. Thank you for the invite. And uh Thank you for doing this. I've, uh, I've enjoyed it. If you or someone you know is being taken advantage of financially, please reach out to Legal Aid or file a financial exploitation protection order. If you don't do anything, nothing will happen, and it may be too late. You should not feel embarrassed or naive because someone else took advantage of you. You did nothing wrong. You have nothing to be ashamed of. We all need help sometimes, and sometimes we need others to support us. More information about this topic is available online at LegalAidWV.org or at your local magistrate court. Thank you for listening to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.